Welcome everyone back to our bonus episode of the Growing Together journey here in the Southwestern Union. And we are delighted by the fact that you have decided to join us in this conversation. And we pray that our time together will be a blessing to you and your ministry context. We are going to go ahead and listen from the Youth and Young Adult Ministries Director of the Southwestern Union Conference, Elder Helvis Moody, on the, on the journey that we have taken as a union back from the beginning of 2020 on how we wanted to grow young and grow together as a union. So, I want to boss it off to Pastor Moody. Thank you, Pastor Justin Yang. And I'm excited about growing together. And I can tell that you're excited about growing together. And we have identified that our church needs to grow together. Uh, Intergenerational. Every generation working together for the glory of God. So yes, uh, we started this journey because we realized that the church must grow together And in growing together, we understand that uh, some of our seasoned members will mentor our younger members, uh, but we are working together for the glory of God. And yes, uh, currently we have about six churches that is involved in this year-long journey uh, developing relationships and trying to identify how God's church can move forward in such a time as this. Pastor Yang, what would you like to share from your experience on growing together? Well, just to start off, I'm really delighted by the fact that the administration of the Southwestern Union has completely bought into this journey that all of our churches can actually journey toward. And from a personal experience, I have personally experienced this in my journey of pastoring a church in Atlanta, Georgia, when I was in the Georgia Cumberland Conference through the journey. And in the, in the, in the journey that we have taken as a church, we, we saw that God had done some incredible, miraculous things that we have never imagined as we assessed our reality, began to work together intergenerationally, and began to move toward a common shared vision of hope for the future of our church. And we believe that that same story of change and transformation can be yours here in the Southwestern Union. This is why we're delighted to have Pastor Marquise Johns as our speaker for this episode. He is the founder and the president of this organization called Synetics, where it focuses on generational synergy. In a time when the world is waking up to all kinds of injustices plaguing our society, Pastor Marquise believes that organizations must truly harness every member's unique energy and talent. That's every member, both old and young, regardless of their age or gender, race or ethnicity, or disability status, or orientation, or functional background or education. His ability to connect and network and build lasting relationships with others, including generations, has remained one of his greatest assets as a diverse and highly trained leader. So it is our privilege and honor to have him speak in this 
manner for semetics, for generational synergy, so that we may be blessed by the presentation and work accordingly together across generations to make growing together our reality. I want to just bump it back to Pastor Moody as he will open us up with a word of prayer before Pastor Marquise Jones presents this message for us. Thank you, Pastor Yang. I want to invite you to pray with me and pray for all of our churches that God will give us wisdom, that we will grow while it is day, for night cometh when no man can grow. Now, I know I paraphrase that. You may not be familiar with it. Work while it is day, for night cometh when no man can work. But we must grow because I have this personal thing that I tell myself and I share with myself, if I stop growing, then I am dying. And I believe that I must grow spiritual, uh, spiritually, excuse me, so that I can be a blessing to others. Our Father, which is in heaven, we are honored that we can listen and learn. Give us a listening ear. Help us to understand. Help us to process what is being said. Then put it in action so that you may be glorified. You did not come for us uh, to be segregated, for us to be divided, but for us uh, to be together so that you may be glorified. So forgive us for our sins and prepare us for heaven and bless this presentation. In the precious name of Jesus the Christ, we pray. Amen. 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 Pastor Johns, the time is yours. And then I want to get right into our presentation for tonight. I want to share with you a couple of things in the way of background, but then move us forward to what we are calling generational synergy. Let us pray. Father, help us lest we perish. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, it, it was probably about 2012, 2013, where Dr. Martin and several members of the North American Division at the time, the president, uh, sought value in convening a conference and a think tank for a weekend to address the attrition rate in our denomination of the young adult demographic. That young adult demographic at the time was the millennial demographic, and we were witnessing an unprecedented uh, departure from our denominational ranks in that particular age cohort. And so uh, President at the time, Dan Jackson, pulled us together for a weekend and started charting a course forward so that we could not only reach, reclaim, and retain, but also release the young adults in the Seventh-day Adventist Church in North America. It was at that time that myself and several others uh, got a hold of various uh, resources that helped us understand what we needed to do in order to galvanize the young adult demographic that had been impacted by the aging of our denomination. And that started for me a journey toward not only trying to minister to and understand the language of millennials, but to understand that at the time there were five age cohorts in our denominational context that needed to learn how to work 
together. And so that was the beginning of my evolution from pastor, evangelist, and departmental director to branching out because of what I was studying and offering what I call synetic solutions, not only to churches, but now also in corporate America. Uh, as recent as this year, I've done talks for Splunk and for the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluations, as well as for Howard University, because everyone is understanding that at this time in Earth's history, in American history, we have five successive age cohorts that if we want to progress, we must harness the talents and the gifts of everyone in each of those cohorts. And so that led to me founding not only Synetic Solutions, but Marquise Johns Consulting Limit LLC. And so tonight what I want to share with you is, are a couple of things. Number one, we'll talk about the descriptors and the shadows of each of these five cohorts, the descriptors and the shadows. The basic description so that you can get, uh, um, you can kind of have a vantage point or you can kind of get an understanding of who they are. And because you've most likely heard talks like these before, you have some idea about their descriptors. So what I want to introduce you to are some of their shadows. And by shadows, what I mean are some of the things that loom over them each age cohort that they've experienced together and it shapes who they are and then from there I want to transition into what is called the generation Z or the centennial effect it, it's, it, it is interesting that this current generation and we saw this first with the Millennials where the Millennials were the first age court in the history of America and demography that needed to be split in two because those born between 1980 and 1995 were significantly different from those born in 1996 to 2000. And so then there began to be an incremental break in the age cohorts or in the dem demography in order to understand the various cohorts. Those born in 1980 to 1995, the millennial cohort, were nothing like what we were seeing in 1996 to 2000. And so sociologists began to break down what was normally a 15 to 20 year time span into five, four, and three year time differentials. But this last generation is very interesting in that it is retrofitting each of the previous cohorts with attitudes and behaviors that are unique to it, but there was never a time before where we could see every cohort impacted so significantly by the attitudes, the behaviors, and the values of one cohort. From there, I want to talk about some of the things that separate the, the various age cohorts. We call those generational gaps or the gaps that need to be bridged. Issues each age cohort disagrees on that if bridged could contribute to generational synergy. There are at least 12 things that I've identified that are gaps between the generations that if we address them head on, this could lead each cohort to a synergistic relationship with one another. And then finally, I would like to share with you my synetic solution, six steps that would help bridge those gaps and help us better understand one another as we hope to work together, not only in the world or in America, but also in our churches. And so let's move right into talking about these five cohorts. These five age cohorts, and I want to include the builders because the builders built everything that we have inherited. And even though even though the builders aren't as present in corporate America or in our churches as they have been in the past, they are still worth mentioning and, and getting uh, worth, not only worth mentioning, but also uh, 
being a part of this presentation, let me just say it that way. So in America, there are five living age cohorts, which are five diverse groups. Each age cohort has different likes, dislikes, and characteristics. And despite dimensional diversity, and what dimensional diversity is, is that in each age cohort, there is still room for individual life experiences. So although I may be from Generation X, and Pastor Moody is from Generation X, he was born in a region of America, I was born in a different region of America, this contributes to our dimensional diversity. Even our gender, our culture, our age, our economic status, our education all contribute to even though there are cohorts collectively, inside of those cohorts individually there is room for what we call dimensional diversity. That said, the newest cohort, as I pointed out earlier, the Centennials, are in the process of retrofitting the previous cohorts with a set of shared behaviors and attitudes that some are calling the Generation Z effect. And so let's start by talking about these cohorts. Again, we want to mention the builders. The builders are also called the silent or the swing generation. Called the silent generation because no U.S. president came from that cohort. Then there are the boomers, the old <laughs> rocks stars of demography, the boomers until the millennials was the only generation that concurrent to its growth had a literary genre dedicated to watching it grow and teaching corporate America how to market to it. Then there are the busters or what we typically refer to as Generation X, Gen X, also called the slackers because people believe that my age cohort didn't like to work. Now where would they get such an idea? Nonetheless, nonetheless, then we move into the new rock stars on the scene, the millennials that cause every corporation, every institution in America to double down on demography and sociology in order to harness the collective uh, buying power of this particular age cohort, the millennials. And so as the boomers shaped so much of U.S. culture for most of the last half of the 20th century, the millennials have and will shape the first half of the 21st century. And then the last generation or the most recent generation to come on the scene, which many are calling the Generation Z or Homelanders. I call them Centennials. Why do you call them that, Marquise? Well, it makes it easier for me to remember when I go Builder, Boomer, Buster, Millennial, Centennial. That's the reason I call them that. Anyways, the Centennial Generation is very unique. Again, we're going to spend a little time talking about them because of what they're doing to not only American society, but also to global society. The Centennial Generation is the first, in American history, the first majority non-white um, um, age cohort the first majority non-white age cohort. And here is another thing, particularly because I'm talking to a religious institution, at least one of 10 will marry across ethnic, racial lines, and within their gender. This is something to take into consideration as we uh, double down on mission statements and vision statements, core values and strategic goals on how we're going to reach this particular cohort is to take into consideration that this is the first majority non-white cohort. This is the first cohort in the history of America that will one in 10 will marry across ethnic, racial and even within their gender. Not to mention, not to mention this generation is inheriting the first post-Christian society. 
By post-Christian, in a sentence, it's we know the story, we're just tired of hearing it. We know the story, we're just tired. We know Jesus rose. We know, Je- But what is it about that story that you want to tell me that should resonate with me? Because America is now officially a post-Christian society. So there you have it. The builders, the boomers, the busters, the millennials, and the centennials. Now let's do a little bit more of a deep dive so that we can get some generational intelligence. What I'll be talking to you about just briefly once again the descriptors basic descriptions of each age cohort the shadows fears that shape each cohort the the tables or table talk what i call it which what each generation brings to the table and what each generation wants from that table and then some of the major issues that age cohorts agree on that again if bridge could contribute to synergy which we are going to call the gaps between the generations the gaps between the generations so before we go any further let me just make sure here. Um, if you were here and if I could interact with you, we would go through a little bit of a, hey, let me, let me get to know what you know about the cohorts. Like, for instance, which age cohort do you belong to? Are you a builder, a boomer, a buster, a millennial, or a centennial? Take some time to think about that. Most of us should know. Some of us should know. And there is an interesting uh, phenomenon in sociology where there is a thing called cuspers. Cuspers. Cuspers are individuals born right in the middle of the transition between one cohort to another. So, for instance, someone born anywhere between 1977 and 1982 could qualify as a cusper. They could they could identify as either Gen X or as Gen Y or as millennials. And so that's another interesting thing to take into consideration. But ask yourself, or if you know, are you a buster, a builder, a boomer, a millennial, or a centennial? With that being said, I would also like to ask you, when you were growing up, what kind of phone did you use? Think about that. And I don't know how, where is, where is somebody's telling me, can, can I walk in front of this screen? Is that okay? If I walk in front of this screen? Okay, good, good. Because I feel confined over there. And if you know me, you know I'm a moving preacher. Uh, uh, what, what, what kind of phone did you use? What kind of phone did you use? And so uh, if, if, if you were here in, in the audience, uh, I would talk to us about the rotary phone. If, if anybody remembers the rotary phone, <laughs> the rotary phone. Uh, and I remember because I grew up using and having access to a rotary phone. Not only that, but Dr. Martin would remember the party line, the party line. And the party line was a line that in a community everyone had access to and you had to wait until somebody stopped using the phone so that your house could have access to the phone. Party lines and rotary phones. Rotary phones were those phones that you took the one Remember the Moody? And you went, and you had to wait till it went all the way back. I mean, I'm sure that the millennials and centennials listening to us talk about this have no idea what we're talking about and would probably shudder at the thought of having to wait until the one went all the way to the dial and then came back before they could dial the eight. Went all the way to the dial and then came back. But here's the thing for those generations or age cohorts like the boomers and the busters who grew up using the rotary phone, This is not indicative of the entire cohort or both cohorts in their entirety, but these cohorts learn patience. 
They learned patience. They learned how they had to wait on that thing, or they learned they had to. They learned patience by having to wait till someone else was done using the phone before they could access the party line. And this concept of call waiting, builders remember when call waiting came into existence and caller ID. So just think about the phone that you use, the phone that you use. Another question I would have you ask uh, answer is, what significant event do you recall as a boomer? The significant event might be the, the, the public execution and murder of John F. Kennedy. You might remember that because the boomer generation experienced that collectively. Not to mention the boomer generation grew up with just three television channels. <laughs> ABC, CBS, and NBC. And while that may be laughable to those of us who have access to thousands of channels today, what it did for the boomers is it connected them one to another. We'll go into that a little bit more later on. And then the final question I would have asked us is this. How did you listen to music? Now, though there are some millennials who still remember the wheel iPod. The wheel iPod, but for us, <laughs> and Dr. Martin is in here, I'm about to you know, continue to talk to him. We remember when the Walkman was introduced. And the Walkman, no matter what company made the Walkman, came with headphones with orange sponges on the... <laughs> and that's how we listened to music. And again, it promoted a little bit of patience. Why? Because we weren't able to just skip to one song. If we wanted to listen to a song, we had to fast forward that tape, see if it was there, and then listen to it until the next song came on. There was no individuating the song selection like we can do today unless we bought this thing called a maxi single. <laughs> Again, these are things to just think about as we look at the differences between the cohorts and their experience, not only in life, but also in how they were entertained, as well as the significant events that they recall. For instance, as a person from the Generation X, I remember, I remember when Rock Hudson was diagnosed with this brand new disease called the uh, Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome. And we watched him battle that thing publicly and what it did and what it said to our cohort. For the millennials, they remember things like 9-11 and maybe the death of Philando Castile or Sandra Bland. These are significant events that you will recall, but these events will also shape you and shape that cohort and will be a shadow looming over you that will inform how you make some decisions both in the corporate world as well as in the church world. So let's do a deep dive. Uh, the builder generation born between 1929 and 1945, and you'll see I, I, I divert, I, I don't agree with all of what the sociologists say about some of the cohorts, so you'll see some of my stuff is a little bit different. 55.4 um, million live births, their concept of their predecessors was to endure them. They were going to endure them. And one author actually said they could hear the wheeze in the chest of their great generation predecessors and know that their time was at hand. They endured 
authority. They endured authority. You'll see here when we talk about a hope to outlive it, this is their view of technology. This generation grew up uh, with uh, mythological stories about uh, alien uh, life forms from other planets coming to the earth with superior technology that would wipe out the world, always, of course, starting in America. But you'll get that on the way home. In any event, they just hoped to outlive this thing called technology. Now, don't get me wrong. I, technology is not just the television and the internet. Technology at the dawn of humanity was also the wheel or the axle. And so they still had a concept of technology that they hoped to outlive it. And their life paradigm was conservative. This, this, this generation was shaped by the Great Depression, the Great Depression and World War II. This was the first generation to see themselves migrate from farms to what we call the bustling inner city. And that had an effect on this generation in, in so much of that, particularly when we talk about the Great Depression and World War II, it informs why they were conservative. How so? You might ask, well, in the Great Depression, they didn't know when they might get another slice of bread or a slice of cheese. That taught them to conserve. This generation, this generation was very happy when a thing came along called, watch this everyone, Tupperware. <laughs> when Tupperware came along. Why were they so happy over Tupperware? Because that would help them conserve their food. Not only that, but something to take into consideration for younger cohorts in the church context who deal who, or who dealt with builders, World War II, again, they're from the farm. They come to the cities their entire lives. Most of their clothes had either been sewn from by hand or handed down to them by a previous uh, 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 sibling or uncle or aunt so when they were enlisted in the war in world war ii or when they were drafted into world war ii they were given they were given a thing called watch this a uniform and they were uh penalized for not taking care of said uniform so when you think about that concept of a conservative mindset being able to keep what it is that you have safe and fresh because you don't know when you're going to get something else. It is counterintuitive to the mass consumerism we see from the generations today where you get a $500 iPhone right now, six months later when iPhone 7B comes out, you spend another $600 on that even though we're in the midst of a recession that challenges the depression and how economically challenged we are as a country. And so here are some things, some shadows that inform who the builders were. This number four here, when you see mass marketing and experts, this generation, and, and when, they were, when, when there were more of them in the churches, I would always tell young preachers that these are your friends because they popularized a concept that they would respect the uniform even when they didn't respect the man because they saw the pastor as the expert. And this generation, being also called the radio generation, gathered around the radio and listened to an individual tell them 
that tide and tide alone was capable of removing the stain from your apron and they believed him because he was said to be the expert and so they treated the pastor they treated the CEO the exact same way they trust implicitly whatever is coming out of the experts mouth and so when you when you put that into a room with a millennial who can fact check you at the drop of a dime who buys a new phone every six months and has to have the throwback Jordans and the throwback LeBrons and comes into church with distressed ripped jeans can't you see how a gap is forming they are about uniforms and conserving that one pair of shoes, not knowing if they'd ever have a second pair of shoes. They are about trusting the expert and not questioning the pastor. Can't you see how a gap is forming between the builders and potentially the millennials? So let's talk a little bit more about uh, what they want from the table and what they bring to the table. Well, what builders brought to the table or wanted from the table, excuse me, is respect. They respected and appreciated, and wanted th they wanted their experience respected and appreciated. Here are three things that builders wanted from the table. They wanted from the table. They wanted inclusion. Even though they were aging, they wanted to be included in the planning of the church's future. Why? Because they are the people, watch this, watch this one more time, they are the builders of this institution and this infrastructure, and so they wanted to have a say in the church's future because the final thing this generation brought and wants from the table, excuse me, is to leave a meaningful legacy. This generation is about legacy. So when you're trying to bridge that gap, one of the things you could tell them is, hey, we are interested in ensuring that our church honors your legacy and your contributions and what is the best way for us to do that you don't hurt anybody by including them in that conversation so let's move from the builders to the former rock stars of the of demography the boomer generation the boomer generation 75.9 million live births their attitude about authority was to replace it their value system was self-based and when it came to technology their view of technology was not to outlive it like their builder predecessors but to master it and boy did they ever <laughs> they mastered technology. Now, here are four of the shadows that surround the, the boomer generation. First and foremost, it's the baby boom itself. How so? Well, because the, the economy and the institutions of America were not equipped to handle so many people. The stores, the schools, the playgrounds, they weren't equipped to handle it. And so what that did, Dr. Martin would agree, is that made this generation one of the most competitive generations because they were competing for spaces in society and it was natural because it the, the, the population had boomed if you will earning them the title baby boom another shadow is the affluence that they experienced uh, many of the builders who served in World War II and some of their older 
some of the builders who are their parents came home from World War II with this fancy thing called a, a, a GI Bill. And the GI Bill was what we would call a stimulus package for those coming home from the war, and it allowed them to buy their homes, it allowed them to buy their cars, and what that did is, because you had so many people with access to federal funds to build homes, is that created jobs, and that created a stable economy, and it contributed to this generation being one of the most affluent generations in the history of America. This is going to come into play later. Then, as we talked about earlier, their, their television and how they experienced television, there were three channels. It connected them so much so that there are pastors in here who could attest to that, were, that are boomers. When they got up on Monday morning to go to school, everyone was wondering if Gilligan made it off the island. <laughs> Everyone, no one was wondering about Lost while somebody else was watching this show or that show or the other. No, everyone was wondering, did Gilligan, what happened between the professor and Marianne? What was going on? And not only that, if someone started whistling the Andy Griffith theme song, someone could finish it because this generation was connected by television. These are some of the shadows that inform who they are. However, let's look at what they want from the table. Now, again, <laughs> you might think this is not applicable to the church world. The first one, a salary. A good salary is still of paramount importance to many of them. Why is this applicable to our Seventh-day Adventist church context? With all due respect, it's applicable because it's the reason why many boomers won't retire. Why? Because many boomers were paying for their parents to be in nursing homes while simultaneously paying for their children to go to school. So they had a, 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 a lot of financial responsibilities. So I tell corporate, I tell corporate, if you're recruiting a boomer, you better be prepared to offer them a very good salary because this is important to them. And it's the reason why in our institution, as well as in corporate America, many boomers have not retired because again, they're used to affluence. So many boomers, I saw a statistic that said um, fewer than 40% of baby boomers have adequate prepared for retirement so they're staying around oftentimes for the salary the other thing that they want from the table it's a title and this is very important when you're trying to particularly specifically the busters the Millennials um, pastors and those young churches when you're trying to figure out what to do with a boomer uh, give them an emeritus title it doesn't hurt anything to call them Elder Emeritus or Pastor Emeritus. They are honored by that title. Oftentimes in corporate America, they don't mind if they have a tiny office in the basement without a window as long as you refer to them as Mr. or Mrs. So-or-so. The other thing that they're looking for, look at this brilliant person here. I mean, he looks just like me, except for probably handsomer. Is that a word? Thank you. See, that's what, when you're, when you're talking to preachers, they understand your struggles. <laughs> they said, that man needs some water. Um, another thing to consider when you're trying to recruit boomers to your organization, or even as you work across the gaps with them, is status. Boomers were taught to work hard and pay their dues. Did you hear me? 
Boomers were taught they needed to pay dues. It's part of the reason why they're looking for busters, millennials, and centennials to what? Do the same. If we had to pay our dues, you have to pay your dues. And so here are some of the things that boomers want from the table. Let's move to the next generation, the next age cohort, the busters. Call the busters because here the live birth bubble burst. Say that five times. The live I can't say it a second time. The live birth bubble burst. And so this is why they're called the busters. But 51.5 million live births, the smallest age cohort in the history of America, squished between boomers and millennials, so they felt overlooked, and their view of authority was to ignore them. They ignored them. Now, this is my generation, so I'm going to get a little personal with you here. Um, they viewed a job as an irritant, which we'll see significant differences in millennials and centennials who view their job significantly different. I hate getting up and going to work. I'm not afraid, ashamed to say it. I hate it. I don't like it, but I have to. It irritates me. Now, different from the boomers and the builders, their view of technology is to enjoy it. Now, this is going to be important, particularly because of their shadows. Now, I'm going to get a little, like I said, I get a little personal, and I pray that we all have on our very mature ears this evening. But one of the first shadows is them being squished between the boomers and the millennials. But more than that, I want to talk about number two and number three, the divorce rate and the AIDS HIV epidemic. During the growth of the baby busters, the baby boomers, because they were... <sighs> They were convinced that they would be forever young, which is one of the other reasons they wanted to master technology. Thanks to the boomers, we have concepts like cryotherapy or, or uh, freezing your body until <laughs> a, a, a cure for a disease is founded and then being able to unthaw it out, even though that's quite unreasonable now. I don't know what will happen in the future. Uh, but, but what happened with the boomers is they were affluent, they, they are the reason we have gems on every corner and vitamin shops and everything possible boomers could do, they did to prolong their lives and not just their lives, but their quality of life and their youth. That contributes to the divorce rate in America and in the church skyrocketing. It skyrocketed, and what it did is it left my age cohort parenting sometimes ourselves. My cohort, now this by, by no means is this like everybody or nobody, but my cohort, because of the divorce rate, is the origin and the proliferation of what we call the latchkey kid. The latchkey kid, the latchkey kid who comes home, and you'll see this, why they ignore their predecessors. Um, the latchkey kid got himself up or herself up for work, um, for school, excuse me. They dressed themselves. They got themselves to school. They did their homework on their own. They came home. They chose what they wanted to eat on their own. They watched television on their own. They, they, they did, did all these things on their own. So by the time the parent comes in the door trying to tell them what to do, they're irritated by them. And they develop, we develop, watch this, we develop because of this divorce rate, we develop a, a, a disdain, if you will, for authority. 
you'll find in most busters at least at some level a disdain for authority they don't want to be told what to do they don't want to be told where to go they don't want, but you'll see this is going to be important later also this divorce rate because when you're trying to get them to come to your church and this is one of the things that i want to address just honestly openly honestly i'm a seventh-day adventist i'm an ordained minister and i just want to talk talk to this the difference between black conferences and white conference or regional and state if we're going to use the pc nomenclature when a buster comes to your church they're looking for you to be able to minister to the entire family because family church and work balance is important to them why because this is the generation that saw divorce rates skyrocket and their mothers and their fathers separate in order to pursue in some instances their father goes through midlife crisis wants a sports car and his secretary mom is left not knowing what to do so she reinvents herself several times does a little bit of plastic surgery and she's now back out on the market and that leaves little marquise gen xer at home all by himself nursing the concept and the mindset to protect a family if he would ever have one and so when you're trying to recruit these individuals to your church you better have a family life pastor that is not your senior pastor y'all don't want to talk back to me on this one you better have a youth pastor that they feel comfortable leaving their children with that is not also the associate pastor this is why it is important now as we move into this new era of church that we allow individuals to specialize. I gotta say this to us. We have to, we have to move away from the old paradigm of everyone being a generalist and people being able to specialize and allow individuals to come out of uh, the colleges and out of the seminaries and say, all I wanna do is be a youth pastor. All I want to do is be a disciple. I don't want to be a senior leader and build teams of pastors that can minister to entire families because every cohort after mine prizes family life balance. And if you don't have that in your church, if you have a superstar teaching, preaching pastor who has no idea of how to minister to the whole family, and yet that family, and so that family is left unfulfilled spiritually, they will leave your church. And here's where they will go. They won't just go um, uh, uh, white conference church or black conference church they will go to the the, the non-adventist church that has a staff of pastors that can minister to the entire family effectively i told you i was gonna get a little personal that's how the divorce rate impacted this generation not only that but here's another thing and again put on your your, your grown-up ears the aids hiv epidemic Coupled with our view of technology to enjoy it. Because of divorce, and I'm not saying this is exhaustive and this is everybody, there is a fear of intimacy. And if I'm going to have a family, I must protect it. But that's if I'm going to have a family because I'm afraid we might get divorced or I'm afraid of actual intimacy because now I can die. Well, there was a point when I could die. Now we can live healthy and whole lives with AIDS and HIV. But early on in, the pen, in that epidemic, we weren't sure. And so watch this, watch this, watch this, watch this, watch this. 
many busters retreated to their basements or to a room and enjoyed life online, which has contributed to a $10 billion industry called porn because we're afraid of intimacy and we're afraid of what can happen to our families if we're in environments that don't value family. And so these are the busters. Let's see what they want from the table. Again, I just said it here, healthy environments. The church environment needs to be family-like. Work-life balance, family happiness, and church, excuse me, work, church-life balance are a top priority. They want to know that you understand. Here it is. Yes, yes, harangue about going out and knocking on doors, but make that a family-friendly a family activity. Tell individuals that they need to be at church on time. Yeah, that's great, but make sure that they can get their kids to a good Sabbath school environment, that if they need it, they can go and have, uh, uh, there's days where they are being ministered to in the family capacity. This is very important. They want to make sure that any church that they're involved in, any organization that they're involved in, values family. And not just this, oh, we're, hey, brother Martin, hey, brother Yang. No, 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 no. You got to get deeper than that. The other thing that busters are looking for is there, and, and, it's, and it's great because I see in my peers and colleagues that are in this cohort, many of them are now into leadership, leadership development, because the other thing that th they want from the table are leaders who roll up their sleeves and welcome feedback. You can't just sit in your conference office issuing edicts doling out things that need to be done. You need to be in the mud. You need to be pitching the tent. You need to be out greeting the people. You need to be out at Pathfinder Camperies. You have to be involved and out there leading on the front lines, not just giving out rules and regulations and things that people should do. So let's move to the millennials. How much time do I have? Am I good on time? Okay, great. Um, 77.9 million live births, their view, and this is, this is something that Dr. Martin, and, and I mentioned him one because he's here too, because he helped us pioneer this in our denomination, particularly in North America. But people don't realize that millennials don't have a problem with authority. They want input. They want to be mentored. So their view of their predecessors is they will choose you. If you allow them to choose you and you don't attempt to choose them and then tell them how they should live their lives. Millennials choose mentorship. Their view of technologies is to employ it. But watch this. They view their job as a place to serve because they are cause oriented. Now, one of the shadows that looms over them is heavy parental involvement. Their buster and boomer parents are more like their big sisters than they are their parents. They show up. I, I had, <laughs> so I have a two-year-old now. And yesterday, I went to pick her up from school, and she was crying. And she was crying, and I looked at her teacher, and I asked her teacher, why is she crying? And the teacher said, I don't know why she's crying. And I looked at her and I said, you don't know why she's crying? Right? I'm, I'm, I'm already bothered, right? Because she doesn't know why she's crying. And I had to step outside and catch myself and, and I make sure, of course, that my, my daughter hadn't been misbehaving, which she had not been. One of her classmates, Henry, accidentally stepped on her hand. And, of course, she was going to pieces over it. But in my spirit, I was already 
ready to ream up the teacher for possibly doing something to my... It, it, this, this, this is symptomatic of, of, of just being too involved, right? So boomers, we talked a lot about boomers in demography and sociology being what we're, we're called helicopter parents, but my generation, busters, are what we call free-range parents. And we let you do whatever you want to do, but should you come with an issue, we are ready to jump in with both feet and fight for our child, even if they're in the wrong sometimes. But that's not the, the shadow I really want to really kind of uh, uh, lean into. I want to lean into number four, nine, eleven. And here's why. Even though a lot of the boomers, I mean, excuse me, a lot of the millennials most likely didn't watch it and couldn't even fathom what they were seeing, the reality is, since 9-11, tragedy has been broadcasted, has been simulcasted real time. Now, after Vietnam, when young men and women were coming back from fighting abroad, having experienced losing friends, classmates, neighbors, and those who they progressed through basic training with, we began as a nation to see what was diagnosed as post-traumatic stress disorder. We realized that they had been experiencing and exposed to so much death and devastation that they were not able to get it out of their limbic system. So there was a medications and counseling and, and all of those things became very, very important to help nurse that group of young people back to some modicum of mental health. I bring that up because since 9-11, this age cohort watches Philando Castile on Facebook gunned down by a police officer. They, 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 they watch Donald Trump tell individuals that they could grab a, a a woman, and she would like it. They, 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 they watch all of these things happen, and we don't think about the possibility that collectively this cohort might be suffering from a mild post-traumatic stress disorder. If you knew that someone was struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder, wouldn't that alter the way you speak to them, the way you relate to them? what you expect of them. So think about that and take that into consideration as we're trying to recruit millennials into leadership, that they may not be as willing to watch volatility, if, if that's a word. They, 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 they don't want to be overexposed to things that may, watch this word because it's a very important word nowadays, trigger them. Why is this so important? Because we're witnessing a cohort that is seeing things like when the boomers saw JFK assassinated real time. Imagine millennials are seeing something like that every two to three months. Think about the exceptional ministry opportunities that presents us. If we could lean into that reality and stop forcing on them because of our conservative values, things that run them away. When I talk about oftentimes in the church context, millennials and their concept of dress and 
builders and boomers who want them to dress a particular way and their mindset is why are you worried about my dress when I'm here in your church I'm here why are you talking to me about my my jewelry or my skirt or I'm here and that triggers them and we lose them so let's see what they want from the table technology that goes without saying, amen, somebody. Keep them focused with speed, customization, and interactivity. This sitting for, again, this is not the boom, this is not the builder. They don't want to sit in church for any amount of time. I, I know in the, the state work, y'all are out by one o'clock. God bless you. And then in the, the regional work, they may be there till three o'clock. Millennials don't want to do that. Interact with them. Find a way to make your, I mean, great lights and smoke machines, that's wonderful, but make the moment interactive. Move it along quickly. They have other things to do because that's how society has paced them. The other thing they want is a casual environment. It goes back to dress. This enables them to worship comfortably and preferably without judgment. And then they want recognition for their contributions. You want to be able to say to a millennial, thank you, because here's again, a head deacon, most people aren't going to name someone born in the millennial age cohort as the head deacon. Why? Because that young person is not going to get up at five in the morning to shovel snow or to get down to the church on Saturday to open it up. But guess what they will do? From midnight to four o'clock in the morning, they will scour the internet to bring you some of the dopest graphics the church has ever seen. So what they bring to the table is an eagerness to learn and immediately apply what they've learned and new ways of looking at things. And what they want from the table is that their ideas and input are valued. They want a cause. We understand that historically Jesus Christ has been a cause. And don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to be funny, but Christ even had a cause beyond telling people about the Sabbath day. Go and look at Luke chapter 4 and you'll find it. Leadership opportunities are also what millennials want. So let's move to this new generation that I call the centennials. By the time it's all said and done, demography says they'll, have, they'll number 82 million, which will make them subvert the millennials as the largest age cohort in the history of America. Their view of authority is to work with them. Again, their view of a job is a place to solve problems, and it should come as no surprise to us, their view of technology is to live it. Uh, VR, virtual reality. Here, is, here are some of the things that are shadows for them. The threat of terrorism. Boomers and busters remember being able to walk right up <laughs> to the airplane and sit there with your family member. They will never know that feeling. Uh, another thing is fear of missing out. And, and, and number two is very important because it is what we call this, this great recession that we're in, that we have cloaked that we are doing so bad economically with credit. And so the millennials and the centennials have more debt than anyone in the history of America. By the time the centennials come out of college, their debt will rival the millennials if we keep them on the trajectory that they're currently on. But here, here's something as a shadow that I really, these four and five, and I talked about this a little bit, particularly in the church context, how are we preparing to deal with this identity diversity question? Are we gonna take a hard stand about what the Bible says in Leviticus? Are we going to, again, remembering that we're coming out of a context of a cohort that may, be, uh, have, may have a mild case of post-traumatic stress disorder? 
we're looking at a cohort that is now being exposed to non-binary gender possibilities, uh, that is not just seeing life through cisgendered eyes. And are we doing what this preacher did, is I spent some time studying diversity, equity, and inclusion so I could learn to utilize inclusive language, so I could put away some of my, my religiously informed biases and see as Christ would do to the heart of the person. When the demoniac ran toward Jesus, Jesus, and, and, and it's a very interesting story when you look at it through a social justice or a black liberation theology lens of a man who lives in a graveyard who has been chained and bound several times, but who understands and knows what people in the health professions look like. That, that to me sounds like growing up in South Central Los Angeles, California, where all around me, you could have basically seen my neighborhood as a cemetery. Broken down buildings, liquor stores and motels everywhere and abound. And men and women who were regularly chained up or we called them repeat offenders suffering from and under uh, through institutionalism, recidivism. This is who the demoniac was, right? And so you have to disabuse yourself of your historic historicist hermeneutic and maybe understand a social justice hermeneutic so that you begin to look past the historical way that we see some of these individuals in scripture and begin to see them the way Christ saw them. So even though I characterize the demoniac in a social justice black liberation theology lens, I know that Jesus looked past all of that and was able to deal with it and minister to the man's heart and to the man's needs without holding against him that he was a repeat offender, without holding against him that his diet compromised his mental state because think about it, what are pigs doing in Palestine? So, so, so and not only that, but the, the demoniac was a man who lived in a place that was continually garrisoned by Roman soldiers. Sounds a lot like over-policing to me. But with all of that said, Jesus was still able to step into the man's mind, read his quiet need, and minister to it. And are we equipping ourselves with, with that type of compassionate ministry so that we look beyond our biases and our stereotypical thought process in order to minister to a generation that sees diversity significantly different from any generation before it? Not only that, but they are post-Christian. <laughs> Here's the thing. It's great that you know your Bible. Now, do you have a handle on the concepts in the Bible well enough to just have a conversation that is biblical without always being scriptural? Everybody doesn't want to hear in Mark chapter 5, verse 2, it says... In Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, it says, some people, if you gave them the concepts because you understand how to be biblical without having to always be, and somebody's going to have a problem with that. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. But if you understand, again, conceptually what I'm saying to us, again, about being able to reach an age cohort where one out of 10 will marry cross-racial ethnic lines, We've possibly come to a place where we're willing to accept that, but the reality is one out of 10 may marry within their own gender. How are you setting up your church 
to minister to that group? Or are you going to take an old antiquated concept and just write them off without attempting to bridge the gap that leads to their hearts? What do they want from the table? And I, I can't understate this enough. Number one, a diverse culture. They want to see proof of work done to address a particular social issue. They want to know that you're, you're at the border or like I, I saw today one of our colleagues, uh, Pastor Moody, down where uh, Ahmaud Arbery's uh, murderers are on trial and so they were told that black pastors shouldn't be in the courtroom and so black pastors descended on the place and, and, and Dr. Knight was there broadcasting saying hey I'm here this generation wants to know that you're leaning in to a social issue and it's not just something you're sermonizing about they also want flexibility listen they're always on and know how to use technology to teach themselves to communicate and complete tasks are you incorporating not just tweet out some stuff not just some snappy graphics are you incorporating technology into your worship experience social media you'll see this again 98 percent of 82 million people pastor 98 percent of 82 million people have a smartphone and last year averaged more than four hours a day on apps. What they want from the table? Transparency, social inclusiveness. Now, as you talk about this, this is I'm transitioning to my third section here. Uh, this generation is the generation where I talk about the Generation Z effect. The Centennial effect is where we need, to, we need to look at the centennials not just as a generation, watch this, but as a set of behaviors and attitudes about how the world will work and how we will need to respond in order to stay current, competitive, and relevant. You need to now see the generation that, is among, that we're in right now, the centennial concept, the centennial generation, as a set of attitudes and behaviors, not just as a set of shared experiences and uh, here, here again, let's keep going. The foundation of the centennial effect, the big shift we are all a part of, including every previous generation, is a new set of behaviors that finally, watch this, finally allows us to work across generations, which is driven by technologies that are increasingly shared. Now, this is important to me. The reason why I talk about this is because we saw in the pandemic the acceleration of what I like to believe is our move toward a post-generational society. The pandemic accelerated what Coopolis and Coopolis says in this book called Generation Z, accelerated our moving toward a post-generational society where it's no longer about what years you were born in or the shared things you experienced. No, now there's a set of attitudes and behaviors that define a generation that irrespective of which cohort you're born into, you will behave and have the attitude and mindset of this generation. Are you listening to me? So here are the four attitudes. There are six that he suggests, but I want to highlight four because we can see them in the church. The centennials, four attitudes and behaviors. First, hyper-connecting. 
we are overly connected by our phones, computers, and other devices. Slingshotting. Slingshotting is accessibility that levels the tech curve between early adopters and laggards. Everybody watch it. You can see it. Oh, this is getting good. This is, this is the part I really like because this is the new stuff. The other stuff I've been talking about, this is the new stuff, right? It's incredible because what we see, and, and, and listen to me, when we talk about slingshotting, it has leveled the playing field, which is interesting because remember, early on, millennials and centennials believe that boomers didn't understand technology. Although, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates are both boomers, <laughs> right? But slingshotting is leveling the curve, the learning curve, right? Okay, I'll get back to that. Influence over affluence. Remember we talked about the boomers being the most affluent generation in the history of America? Well, the centennials and the millennials are affluent, but in a different way. They're leveraging their influence. Watch this. Pastor Wilson in Southeastern California Conference. Young, uh, young man from of Indian descent, during the pandemic, he decides he's going to ch share some life lessons while he makes a cup of chai tea. He grows his social media platform to 100,000 followers, which transitions, and I might be telling his business, so do you know this, Dr. Martin? You, you guys know it too? Into a book deal to produce like coffee table books, a chai table book, all because, not because he had gone to the best schools or because he had families who could open the doors of Penguin House, but because they saw how he had followers and likes on social media and they wanted to harness that following because they knew it could translate into money. Um, okay. Next. Fourth, and finally, life hacking, using shortcuts to outsmart the system so as to focus on outcomes rather than processes. Here is how centennials are going to avoid the multi-billion dollar college deficit their millennial predecessors are in. You ready for it? Self-taught, uh, self-guided learning, excuse me. You can go on YouTube now and learn everything from how to change your oil to how to change a battery in your phone. You can now, now universities are diversifying how they help you get your academic credits by giving things like certifications that nowadays because corporate America has done what the church is failing to do is they've moved to a mindset of specialist versus generalist that an individual without any degree can go and get four certifications, become a specialist in a particular area and command a multi, a hundred thousand dollar Salary, thank you, Elder. A hundred thousand dollars salary without any college degree. Why is this possible? Because of this thing called life hacking. So, why is this possible? I once saw Dave Kinnaman do this, and I probably need to, but I don't know what it was in. But this is how they're able to do it. The best human inventions are in your pocket. Think about that. Think about that. Here is how I believe that this has been jump-started. During the pandemic, look at this percentage of U.S. adults who said that as a result of the coronavirus, their own religious faiths have become 
Strong, look, strong, hadn't changed much, wasn't applicable. So people kind of held on during the pandemic. Why? Because they were looking for a new iteration of the church. They were waiting till they saw that new iteration of the church. These are the percentage of US religious attenders who say they are confident they could safely attend in-person religious services right now without spreading or catching the coronavirus. Look at this, they're saying, well, I could probably go to church, but if there was a new iteration of church, because, notice this, they typically attend religious service, who said in the last month, they attend a religious service in person or watched it online, look at that. Why is this important? It's important because of the Generation Z effect. There was a time when we thought no one would just stay at home and watch church, right? But now, through hyper-connectivity and slingshotting, what is slingshotting? Overnight, we all had to learn how to use Google Hangouts, Zoom, StreamYard. Over, after January 20th, when the first recorded case of coronavirus happened in Washington, within three weeks, where we went from seeing 1,500 people die to 150,000 people die in a matter of a month, everybody then had to find out how to continue to work without losing revenue. And so, irrespective of whether you're a centennial, millennial, buster, boomer, whatever you were, and I'm sorry to say this is going to sound terrible, but the pandemic also negatively impacted in a very significant way the builder cohort to where they, will know they were no longer a part of the conversation preventing uh, technology as we know it today from becoming the mainstay in how we approach corporate, company, church, and everything else. This Generation Z effect is something that we need to think about because this generation, again, is retrofitting every other cohort. Watch this. Many Americans say they have changed religious habits due to coronavirus outbreak. 55% say they prayed for an end, but watch this. 59% say they have attended religious service in person, less than often, and 57% say they watch religious services online or on TV. And this includes boomers and builders who are still alive. They're, these are the people right here who would have never turned on television to watch church. Now they, they slingshotting, everybody is right on Roku. Everybody is downloading an app now that they can watch television. Irrespective of your, your, demo, your age cohort, everyone is participating online. So things like dress, Whereas this used to be the difference, the builder said, oh, formal dress. The boomer said, I walked in here, I had on a jacket, you know, a lot of little patches and stuff on it. And I said to Justin, I said, Justin, I don't have time to change. He said, don't worry about it. We're, we're no longer worried about dress, Dr. Murray. No, why? Because for at least 18 months, you put on, at, at, at the beginning of the pandemic, all of y'all put on a shirt and a tie and your gym shorts. Soon, you put on your, your, your gym shorts and your conference polo. After that, you just put on whatever you wanted to put on and nobody cared anymore. Because slingshotting, 
the attitudes and behaviors of the centennials who the way they view dress is they want to be comfortable wherever they go. Now all of us think the exact same way, right? Why? Because the pandemic accelerated our move toward generations now being attitudes and behaviors. Watch this. Centennials, I want to be comfortable wherever I go. That is the mindset of all of us now because we can afford it. I did a training for the Institute for, um, the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluations. They are run off of a, a robust grant from the, from the, uh, from the uh, uh, Bill Gates Foundation. And it's funny because I was having a conversation with them on Generational Synergy and the majority of the people there were millennials. They looked like they worked at the Apple store. <laughs> Right? Right? Everybody was comfortable. And it, and it forced the, the CEO, the director, Chris, he, he just adopted it. Why? It's not, it's not impacting their productivity. Communication. Builders. I'll write a memo. Busters. I'll send an email. Millennials. I send a text or I get on social media. Centennials. 98% of them on a smartphone. And last year, averaged four hours on an app. They are hyper-connected. Guess what? So are we now. I can, all of us, can, there's a few of us, Moody, Martin, Peter, could remember preaching and wanting to tell the people to put their phones down. You can't say that now. <laughs> you can't say that now. If they're in the church at all, if they're in the building, right? Some of them are watching you on their phones. As it concerns meetings, we met builders, we met frequently, and the boss did most of the talking. Again, the expert concept, the, the boomer. Meetings were how we got information, and they created political opportunities for everyone. A friend of mine just recently took an administrative post at one of our conferences, and he said to them, workers' meeting was no longer going to be informational, it was going to be inspirational. Right? Why? Because this, he's a, he's a boomer, but he realizes his Buster Millennial and Centennial pastors don't view meetings as a place to be fed information. Millennials, meetings are okay, but don't bore me. Meetings for Centennials. Anyone can connect with anyone at any time, and the possibilities that arise from hyperconnectivity are endless. Why are you still getting, trying to make me come to a building? Why? This is the attitude of the Centennial. About church. Church makes a difference. The boomer says, does church make a difference? The buster says, what difference does church make? The millennial said, if church isn't making a difference, I'm not interested. But the centennial says, I'm looking for something different from church, right? So I want to get into a couple of the ways of shooting the gaps, if you will, and then I'll get out of here. Number one, when you're trying to bridge the gaps, the first thing you want to do is assess. Is Texas Conference and Southwest Region, Southwest, Southwestern Union, inclusive? Is Southwestern union inclusive you need to do some assessments i say and i've learned this i've learned this since i've been doing this work and and interacting with the various individuals that i was privileged to interact with once dan jackson um and and the team opened us up to allowing the barnet group and our interactions with um the the fuller youth institute 
I wish I, I, wish I had a, a captive audience here so I can get you guys to say this all with me. Survey for survival. Survey for survival. Stop throwing things up against the wall and seeing what sticks and thinking that's a success. Survey your congregants, survey your conference, and be intentional about surveying whether or not you're inclusive. Inclusive of gender differences, age differences, racial, ethnic, ethnic differences, disability differences, economic differences. Is your, is your organization inclusive? Survey for survival. Take the guesswork out of it. When you have, the, listen, one of my favorite rappers, and you might not like this, but he's one of my favorite. He has a line. He said, men lie, women lie, numbers don't. When you get that data, you might say, oh, of course, Texas Conference, of course, Southwestern Union is inclusive. But that data will tell you, no, you are not. Are you having the conversations about the LGBTQIA community? Are you reacting to the Ahmaud Arbery situation, or are you on the front lines of it, promoting and teaching anti-racist rhetoric? That's what makes an organization inclusive, not thinking you're inclusive. And the only way you can know for sure is survey for survival, assess. First step is assess. Second step is acknowledge. Acknowledge we're different. Because, listen, because Alan is who he is and I am who I am, that gives us an opportunity to learn from one another. Learn those cultural differences, right? So talk about generational differences. One of our colleagues had a great idea, uh, Benjamin Lundquist, um, I just love Ben. Ben equipped one of his millennials with a BOGO um, and sent a millennial and a boomer on a dinner date together and had them record the entire thing, come back the next day to church and talk about what their differences and similarities were so that they could, as a church, then deal with and understand and acknowledge the differences between the generations. Appreciate. You got to appreciate. Justin, listen, I, I have a friend, his name is Danny Kwan. Now, I don't necessarily like it, but if Danny Kwan had not introduced me to kimchi, I would have never experienced it. I don't necessarily like it, but I mean, I experienced it, and I can appreciate it, right? So guess what I introduced Mr. Kwan to? Yams. Come on now. <laughs> Yams. Not pumpkin pie. Sweet potato pie. Ain't no pumpkin pie. Appreciate those differences. Appreciate the differences even in, the, in America. The difference between the southern Alabama, Mississippi, Atlanta, and what you get when you go up to Seattle. And what, there's differences that you can appreciate. Just the different approach. Like even when you talk about music. Man, listen. Trap, like y'all don't, don't put you. <laughs> Moody used to go through Texas. In the Impala. Bumping trap rap music, you appreciate that, right? But then if you're in New York, you might want to, you have a different appreciation for that style of music. But when the two come together, when you would see like a Jay-Z on a song with UGK, it was like, oh, this is everything. See, and even if you don't understand what I'm saying now, it's an opportunity for you to learn. Adjust. Agree on how to accommodate different approaches. You assess, you acknowledge, you appreciate, 
And then when you see, wait a minute, you know what? Kimchi is a pretty staple meal. I think I'm going to have to adjust and include that in what my, 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 my palate, right? And then finally, amplify. No, this is not fine. This is, this is fifth. Amplify. This is how you capitalize on the strengths of each generation. And I'm running through these because I'm going to give us a real-time way of talking about it. And then assert, determine which option will yield the best results when no adjustment can be made. So let's now look at this. How is the church experience in Southwestern Union? To get us talking, is it inclusive? Right? The next question I would have asked us to wrestle with is, does it align with one generation more than another? Because then if it does, it's not inclusive. Not only that, but if so, how do we, if it aligns with one generation, whether that be a millennial generation, when I was uh, speaking and training Splunk, uh, who's their CEO, just okay, never when I was, they were a very buster organization, like Oracle, right? Very buster generation, I mean, buster-driven organization. So how do we create a more inclusive concept of church? But we can't even start having that conversation if we haven't assessed, if we haven't acknowledged, if we haven't appreciated, if we haven't made some adjustments. And then finally, what is the one thing that individually you can do to make the union more inclusive? And while we're talking about ageism, this is what this, this presentation is primarily about, how to combat ageism, these steps can help you in any one of the other uh, inclusive or diverse, the conversations on diversity and inclusion. So now, dress, good one. Formal dress shows respect on and off the job. I wear the expected uniform. I prefer casual, but it's not worth the fight because we're the smallest generation. What's the big deal over dress? And I want to wear athleisure to church. Right? So now let's, let's, let's use the steps. So assuming that you've already assessed, the next step is to acknowledge the difference. The truth of the matter is each age cohort will give a different answer to the question of what should constitute proper church attire. What everyone should keep in mind, here is how we acknowledge, everyone keep in mind that each generation wants the same thing, to be comfortable attractive, and taken seriously. Acknowledge. Appreciate. Focus on the why, not the what, and the common needs. Here is what you do. You let this conversation be driven by mission. Whereas builders and boomers grew up seeing one version of respectable formal dress, millennials and centennials see many different versions of formal dress around the world. Furthermore, they see very successful people with very different dress codes. They know that success is not about how you dress. To them, clothing makes a statement about personal style, not belief. Each successive age cohort is less formal than the one before, so we appreciate the fact that the millennials are coming up and they see Steve Jobs present and move his company to one of the biggest companies in the world in a black turtleneck, some jeans, and track shoes. Somebody would say, well, you can't, well, would you wear that before you go for, before the president? Nowadays, yeah. <laughs> right? So then we see where we can adjust. The key criteria for when to adjust for a generational gap is to determine if you're dealing with a spiritual necessity or a generational preference. In the case of dress, which is a serious gap, we should stop assuming everyone is on the same page about how to dress for church and allow the mission 
to drive this conversation. What is the mission? Justin, who are you trying to reach? That's it. If you're trying to reach corporate America who still wear suit and ties, then guess what the dress code of your church might want to be? If you're trying to reach youth and young adults who, don't, who think it's okay to have on Crocs and some distressed black jeans, guess what your dress code should be? But it starts with a conversation where you acknowledge, you assess, you acknowledge, you appreciate, and you make the adjustment where necessary. Amplify, capitalize on the strengths of each generation. As it concerns dress, the different generations help each other with dress code more than any other gap. Watch this, three ways. Older cohorts help the younger ones understand clothing sends a message, even if it's an unconscious or unintended one, right? Older cohorts need help understanding when clothes have no message other than what is now the style, <laughs> right? Oh, you look like, look like you're going to the club. Oh, this is how we dress now. And third, the younger cohorts keep the church relevant. Finally, and this is the tough one. This is the one where I, you know, I hit you a little, this is going to be a gut punch, and then I'm done. If you have made it to this step, if you're reading this, if you've made it to this step as it concerns dress, my advice, watch this, stop managing and start leading. What do you mean, preacher? The only thing really suffering at this point is the mission of the church. Get stakeholders from each age cohort to participate in discussion on dress and let the church know the decision that has been made Again, based on who you are trying to reach. See, at this level, when no, listen, when God told Moses to walk in the desert for 40 years, then that's just what they needed to do. Korah, Datham, and Abiram could complain all they wanted to. Miriam could complain all she wanted to. But we are now moving in this direction, and anybody who doesn't want to, well, you'll deal with God. And that's a hard thing. But that's the difference between being a manager and being a leader. The six steps. Assess, acknowledge, appreciate, adjust, amplify, and assert. Because we're now in a world, in an America, where generational differences aren't going to be what prevents us from moving forward. It will be our inability and unwillingness to discuss them like so many other issues that plague our country and our church. I hope that you found this enriching. Um, at this time, I'll invite up my host, Pastor Moody, to uh, make sure I was on point. <laughs> Thank you, Doc. Thank you. I hope that all of you were blessed, and I know you heard so much information, mm -hmm. so you may have to go back and watch it over and over again. So we want you to know that you can go to the Southwestern Union page, you can share it, it's on YouTube and on Facebook, and watch it as much as you possibly can. And we know that it has been a blessing to us uh, collectively, and we believe that you will be blessed as you continue to watch and study it. You've heard the term cohort over and over again. A group of people banning together. 
or a group of people band together. So when you hear us say that we are growing together, it's a group of people, regardless of the generation, coming together for the ultimate goal, and that is preparing for the soon second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Who says amen to that? Amen. We want to uh, close out and pray tonight, but we want to say to you that here in the Southwestern Union, five conferences, Arkansas, Louisiana, Texaco, Texas, Southwest Region, and Oklahoma, these five conferences, uh, we host at the Southwestern Union office, and we are all banning together our office the union is taking care of the registration and the deadline is December 31 December 31 act now sign up now if you want your church to be a part of this cohort all right it is a year-long journey that the church is going through you will have dynamic presentations like you've heard here you will have opportunities to mix and mingle and practice the things that you've learned here so let's pray together our father which is in heaven we thank you for what we have heard now we pray that we're able uh, to process it unpack it and then allow it to, to uh, move and and live in our lives and in our churches individually and collectively so that you may be glorified. Uh, carry us safely um, to our various destinations and may we be a blessing to all. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Oh my goodness, I pray that you were blessed by this presentation. It was dynamic and insightful, but I have some news for you. If you are part of the Southwestern Union, that's the states of Oklahoma, Arkansas, Louisiana, New Mexico, and Texas, or a part of the five conferences that house the Southwestern Union, which is Arkansas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, Texaco, and the Southwest Region Conference and none other than the Texas Conference. Those five conferences make up these five states in the Seventh-day Adventist Church Organization by conferences. And we can't forget to let you know that we have a university called Southwestern Adventist University and they are growing as well. But check it out. The union. Yes, my office. I'm the Young Adult Director. It has been introduced. I've been introduced as the Young Adult Ministries Director. My my office and administration has decided to pay for 30 churches. Wow. How many did I say, Pastor Yang? 30 churches. Up to 30 churches. So check it out. If we have five conferences, six times five is 30. All right. So right now, if you're in one of those five conferences that I named, you may get a full scholarship for your church to enroll right now. That's right, right now. Pastor Yang, come and tell us where and how they can register right now. All things related to Growing Together Cohort can be found at growingtogethercohort.com where you can find the fact sheet to really get into the logistics of when this begins, what's happening each month, 
who can be involved, the cost, all of the resources that are included in this bundle and package for the journey. And if you are sincerely interested in joining the cohort, we would suggest and recommend that you contact your Youth and Young Adult Ministries Department at your conference to gain some more additional insight and advice on how you should proceed with the journey. And they can also sign you up through the, their particular conference to set you up with the coaches and the resources that you would need throughout that journey as well. And also, I would like to include that if your church has officially made a decision to join this journey, you will need your church board meeting minutes to submit along with your registration so that we know that your entire church, especially your leadership team, is on board with this decision. We praise God for the decision that was made at the Southwestern Union to support 30 of our churches, 100% subsidy for this journey. And we pray that each and every one of you will perfectly consider joining this journey as a local church. Now, Pastor Moody, why don't we just go ahead and say a word of prayer for all of our churches that are prayerfully considering for this journey up ahead. Pastor Yang, right before we pray, can you tell us when registration closes? Oh, sure thing. The registration is open right now, and it will be open until January the 12th, where the first summit will take place. And just another note, thank you so much for reminding me, while the registration is open, there are some interest webinars that are going in right now. The first one was this past Monday, but we want you to know that there are two more that's left for you to take advantage of where you can ask all of your questions. If you have any apprehension, any doubts, any concerns, this, these are the webinars that you can take advantage of to ask your question to see just exactly what you're getting into. We would strongly recommend for your your church leaders to consider joining these webinars to know exactly what the cost is for your church, the commitment this is for your church for this year-long journey. All right, Pastor, thank you so much. Now, we may be paying the financial cost, but there are some other costs that you may be um, you may need to know about, such as purchasing the books. We encourage you to do that. But as far as the cohort and the cost of it, the union up to 30. Now, if you're not, if you church 31, you may have to go back to your church or go and talk to your conference. But we want you to know that we here at the Southwestern Union are committed to serving the Lord and growing together. Our Father, which is in heaven, thank you so much for the presentation. Thank you so much for the churches that have done the first year. And now some of them are engaging in the second year cohort. But for those who've never signed up and they're interested in growing together uh, with all of the membership on one accord, I pray that you would bless them in a mighty, marvelous way. In Jesus Christ's worthy name, we pray and that everything that's done will be done decently and in order, and that you may be glorified. Save us in thy kingdom, we pray. Forgive us for our sins. In Jesus Christ's worthy name, amen. Amen, amen. All right, everybody, I want you to know I'm Pastor Helvis Clay Moody, and I love you, but God loves you best.